that interaction right there won Viola Davis an Oscar. Everyone, welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Yeah, and welcome back. We're we are back again, Jacob. It's the two of us chatting about a new play again. And what's the play? We're going back to Pulitzer style this time. Yeah, that is absolutely right. And we're going back to one of the classic plays of the American stage. One of the plays that built American theater as we know it. One of the bricks upon which we all stand. Mr. August Wilson and his incredible play Fences. Yes, Fences by August Wilson, and a play that continues on with a life of its own to this day, or until very recent memory, you know, have, having this play running on Broadway and in, in film, which we will get to in a minute, but I'm just so excited to talk about this play. Scenes were read of this play in my history of theater class. Of course, I watched the movie when it came out, and I'm just really stoked to get to talk about it. Yeah, of course, it's an um, just an incredible play. It, this is the kind of play that's really a, a privilege to get to talk about. We only get to do them so often because we try to really vary our programming. So doing these, you know, these plays upon which American theater is built, like I said, right. doing those plays is is just so much fun. And we only get to do them every so often. So it's exciting to be here. Before we get to the exciting conversation to come, we do want to ask you to go on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's where we're set up to receive donations from folks like you so that you can become a supporter of the show. If you like what you're hearing, if you like the work that we're doing, we need your support. It's not free to do. We love it, but it costs us money, and we need your help on that front. So please head on over there. There's a couple of different tiers. Uh, Patreon is a monthly donation, but the lowest tier is $1 a month, $12 a year. As I like to say, I know a lot of you would write me a check or hand me $12 if I asked you for it. So please do that through Patreon dot com slash no script podcast so you can support that we're that we're doing at the different tiers there's different rewards and things that you get access to patron only posts you become a producer at somewhere along the line so please head on over there and check that out that'll be a huge huge help to the work that we're doing here on no script yeah, just that $1 amount will help us out so much with the various fees associated with this. So thank you to everyone who heads on over to patreon.com slash podcast. We will see you over there. Now, back to the script. Yes, back to the script. We, uh, as we mentioned before, Fences, August Wilson. Uh, Fences is a 1985 play written by August Wilson as a part of his Pittsburgh cycle. And actually, I'll be fully honest here and say that I was not quite aware of the, the gravity of the Pittsburgh cycle until we were talking right before the play. And Jacob, you brought up the fact that this is a, a part of a series of 10 plays. That's right. Yeah. So of these 10 plays, nine of them are set in a neighborhood, a specific neighborhood in Pittsburgh, and they're set all throughout the 20th century. So sometimes it's called the Century Cycle or August Wilson's 1900s plays is a little more colloquial. <laughs> but he, you know, he wrote a play for each of the decades, again, the vast majority taking place actually in Pittsburgh. I have seen another of the plays in the Pittsburgh Cycle on stage at the Goodman, which was a really fun experience. 
partially just because the Goodman's awesome, but also to see you know, the the Pittsburgh cycle is kind of a way to document American history, especially American history through the black experience. So a really cool cycle of plays. Fences is, of course, the most notable of that that set of plays by leaps and leaps and leaps and bounds. Yeah, and and we talked about the kind of gravitas that this play has. It is a play, it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1987. Its original production had James Earl Jones in the main uh, character role of Troy. So this this play has worked its way into a lot of our kind of national uh, theater psyche as, as, as we consume plays. As I mentioned, the, the, it won the Pulitzer Prize. It won the Tony Award for the best play. Uh, James Earl Jones won the best actor in a leading role role Tony when it when it came out and a best performance by a featured actress was won by Mary Alice who played Rose in the play so this play took the you know 1987 85 year by storm uh so uh so yes it 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 made its way into our vernacular that way and in recent time it is it had a resurgence it had a revival in 2010 uh Broadway revival and that production included Denzel Washington Viola Davis Davis and uh that that duo then went on to make the movie as well so uh pretty and that's that's uh that one was 2016 so so we've we've had you know what is that? Forty-ish years, maybe forty, fifty years of uh, of the of this play kind of rolling around in our in our uh, theater-consuming minds as as it has uh, introduced us to uh, Pittsburgh and to the uh, black community in that area as they are working and 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 this family, this family that we're going to get to interact with with its kind of patriarchal entity. Absolutely. And this play in the Pittsburgh Cycle series is the play that takes place in the 50s. In the late 50s, 1957 is when um, August Wilson says that it starts. This is one of the plays that takes place in Pittsburgh. And the characters are, as Jackson said, Troy Maxson. He was the character played by Denzel Washington and his wife, Rose are the two, the the mainstays of the play. That would be Denzel and Viola Davis in the incredible movie. And they have, uh, together, they have a son named Corey. Uh, Troy, I almost said Denzel, but I mean Troy, has another, <laughs> a son by a previous marriage named Lyons. And then uh, Troy's brother, Gabriel, is a character in the play. And Troy's friend, uh, Bono or Bono is a character in the play. There's a, another character that doesn't occur till very, very late in the play, the very, very end of the play. So we won't talk about her quite yet. But the, that's the group. What, what the play covers really is the life of Troy. He's a garbage man. Him and Bono are garbage men. And uh, at the very beginning of the show, it's initially one of the conflicts is that the garbage company is not letting African American people be drivers. Only the white men can be drivers. And Troy is taking that fight through the union to try to earn himself the right to be a driver. The play continues on and it really becomes about more about Troy's personal life than about that particular career fight as it goes. His relationship with Rose is put under some stress, especially his relationship with Corey, his son by Rose, is is put under some stress. Um, the you know, they're they're a working poor family. 
Troy's brother Gabriel is a World War II vet, and during that war, he had some damage to his brain that resulted in there's like a metal plate in his skull. But really, the core of it is that he received some money from the government, and and that money is why Troy has a house. It's a revealed in the play. So they're in a tough financial situation, and some of the stress of the play is on how that financial situation affects them and, and the family. Um, and then, of course, Troy's decision making, especially in regards to women, becomes one of the crucial heartbreaking moments of the play later on. Yeah, it's it's this it, it's it sounds like this kind of family dynamic play in a lot of ways, though, it's it's focused in on Troy having stressful relationships with most people in his life. Um, he He's kind of this, this um, oh, maybe like this, this eye of a maelstrom that's around him that's kind of of his own making. Um, he, he, he lives in this antagonistic way towards the world. Um, and, and maybe that's a little harsh, but uh, in many of his relationships, he serves as this this pusher, this prodder, or the center of attention. That's right. This is how August Wilson describes Troy. I think this really backs up what you're saying, Jackson. Troy is 53 years old, a large man with thick, heavy hands. It is this largeness that he strives to fill out and make an accommodation with. Together with his blackness, his largeness informs his sensibilities and the choices he has made in his life. He is the center. He is the the thing around which he tends to find the characters in his life rotating. He feels himself as the center of gravity. And that becomes true of the play and really becomes one of the crucial conflicts of the play. As the people around him start to say, where's the space for me? How can I make myself the center of gravity sometimes when I'm around you all the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and yeah. And the, the, the question then becomes, is that even possible? And I think Troy often answers, no, <laughs> it's not possible. If you're around here, I'm the center of gravity. And, and this, this, this place, this domain is, is mine. And, and you gotta, you gotta get in line or else you can hit the road. Yeah, and, and he's very possessive about his his house, his family, his possessions, even though he reflects several times through the play on the circumstances of their life, which is that some of this stuff he doesn't have by his, the work of his own two hands. He has by luck, by chance, or by, you know, his brother getting hit in the head in, in the war. Yeah, let's unpack that just a little bit. His brother gets hit in the head in the war. Uh, he needs to ha have a metal plate put in his head. And uh, Gabriel shows up throughout the play. His brother's name is Gabriel. And um, what we learn is that the the government paid him $3,000, I believe, um, to uh, as, as like a... Some sort of... Sorry, you, you got your head blown halfway off. Um, <laughs> and... And uh, that money, or at least some of it, wound up going to Troy as a kind of a caretaker role, I believe, was how uh, how the money wound up there, at least. And that m at least part of that money wound up going into buying the house that they lived in. Right, yeah. Rose talks about how when all this money dealing went down, 
Gabriel wasn't really in a place to make decisions about that money. So Troy, as his, I guess, guardian or next of kin, uh, made the decisions about the money for him. The decisions they made were to buy a house. And there was a room for Gabriel. And until the start of the play, Gabriel has been living with them. Uh, Just prior to the play, he's moved off to a sort of boarding house. I don't know if it's a straight up apartment that he's just renting or if there's more maybe care involved at that kind of a place. I'm, I'm not totally sure sure what Miss Pearls is, but that's where he's got a room, actually two rooms he's very proud of. Uh, But tell us a little bit about Gabriel, Jackson. Yeah, so Gabriel is this very loving character who comes in. He is clearly has uh, some level of uh, disability with his brain trauma. Um, He comes in and uh, he he, uh, hears some voices sometimes. He calls them hellhounds. He's preparing for the judgment day. He has a horn that he blows when he's around people or has with him at all times when he's, when he's with people. And he's, he's always, he, when he shows up, he's always very, um, complimentary and, and thankful for both Troy and Rose. Um, he's very grateful for them. He loves the family. He loves talking to Corey and Leon when he's home. Um, but also he has moved out and and we we kind of hear that that is by his choice um so so we know that there's some tension there something that isn't that's like below the surface of this relationship i don't know that the play really points at that too much what do you, what do you think though yeah it- Gabriel says over and over that Troy is mad at him for this decision to move to Miss Pearls. And Troy says over and over that he's not mad at him. He can live wherever he wants. But when Rose pokes and prods at that a little bit, some of Troy's hackles go up. His defensiveness goes up. You know, here's an example. Rose says, well, you know, he wanted to move to an apartment so he could come and go as he pleases. You know, that's where he he wanted to be. And Troy immediately says, well, he could come and go as he pleases here. I wasn't stopping him. He's a free man. And Rose, of course, the right answer says, well, it's, you know, it's different, Troy. But I'm not sure that Troy sees it as different. I, it's hard to know whether he sees it specifically as a, an, a, some sort of he's taking offense at Gabriel moving out. Or I think more likely, if Gabriel's not living in the house, profiting personally from his money from the government that they put into the house, what justification is there really for Troy to have this house? That was the result of Gabriel's money. Right. I, I like that a lot. And I think it ties into it ties into this kind of, if there is a tragic flaw, and I think there is some tragedy flavor to this play, um, I think uh, Troy's tragic flaw is that he's a storyteller and he believes his own stories. And so what we see in a lot of these things, that we, just the two things we've already brought up, right? The house and, and his brother we see that the story he has told people and himself is starting to fall apart on the on the underside of it. He's keeping this facade up that he's caretaking his brother. And maybe, he, fo- I believe, he fully believes it. He thinks he's taking care of his brother. He's taking care of his family, that the world can't break him, that he could have been an all-star, that he has uh, amazing baseball skills, that uh, he knows the best thing to do for his son's life. And and But inch, inch by inch throughout this play, it's like a confluence of all of these things have the rug ripped out from under them a little bit. And he's forced to, he's forced to look 
through other people's eyes at himself and wonder if he is everything that he's told the story about so far. I think you've hit on something really insightful. This idea that part of the journey of the play is watching Troy the storyteller, or if you're inclined, you might call him Troy the liar, (laughs) see his stories and his lies fall apart. You get that very early on. In the first scene of the play, I think it's set up so well for then the more subtle versions of this to occur through the whole play. In the first scene of the play, Troy and Bono and Rose are all talking. Lions comes in and out at various times. And basically through the scene, Troy tells two really awesome stories. I mean, (laughs) funny, fun, interesting stories. The first of them is about when he was sick and he uh, apparently was in a hospital for a while and while he was sick, he claims to have wrestled the devil for three days. And this is like part of his personal history is this idea that he met the devil and overcame him. And now he's not afraid of the devil, not afraid of death because he wrestled him and, and, and he beat him. And Rose says, yo, Troy, you're being, you're being ridiculous. That is not true. Don't say crap like that. You crazy. And, uh, <laughs> and then the same thing happens almost, almost, almost right, right away right yeah, after that page right? later <laughs> he tells this great story maybe maybe one of the great stories a story within plays uh of all time about his furniture yeah yeah he tells this story about how when they moved there he was working for the he he's working for the garbage disposal place uh and uh no one would give him credit to buy furniture for his home. So they had bought the home. They had really kind of crappy furniture, he says, in there. And uh, he says, no one, he goes around, no one would give a black man credit. And so he's he's coming home. He's mad. He says, you can ask Rose. She, she'll tell you how mad I was. And then a knock came at the door. And I opened the door and there was the devil. <laughs> Tall, white man, dressed really well. And, um, and he says, if you want credit, I'll give you credit and I'll furnish your whole house. All you got to do is pay $10 a month at the start of the month and uh he says wouldn't you know it you know a couple days later these guys all show up they load load the furniture into the house and they show me a contract and and uh i've ever since that day 15 years ago now i've paid ten dollars a month and i just i almost don't want to know what happens if i stop paying it yeah, and 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 Rose, you know, right away says that's not true at all. Yeah, just the whole time <laughs> we got like... that furniture from a furniture store, like everybody else. You're not paying ten dollars a month to the devil, Troy. <laughs> and that's funny, right? That's a great story. It's inventive. It's, I mean, it's just it's so great of a story, but. It comes apart. It's proven false. Troy's exaggerations of his personal history and his beliefs about himself are proven false in a very easy to understand, uh, concise way. Troy tells the story. Rose says to his friend, no, that's not true. Don't listen. That's, that's, that's a lie. And that falls apart. And then I think what we see over the course of a longer play in far more subtle, insidious, hurtful, painful ways that come true for all these other stories that aren't so obviously untrue about Troy's life. You know, here's an example. End of scene one, Troy, this is uh, after Lyons has left, he's given him some money, Bono's about to leave. Troy says, in the stage direction is uh, putting his arm around Rose, see this woman, Bono? 
I love this woman. I love this woman so much it hurts. I love her so much I done run out of ways of loving her. So I got to go back to basics. And then he makes a sex joke, basically. That core story that he's so madly in love with Rose, that he and Rose are this over-the-top, romantic, incredible, passionate couple. He only has eyes for her. Is part of Troy's belief about himself and about the world and about their family, that he and Rose are blessed to find each other and is stuck by each other through all the rough parts of their life. And of course, Troy proves that part of his story wrong. And he proves it wrong by virtue of this other woman that he sees throughout the play that he has to go to to get what he's not getting from Rose. Right, right. That and and that the kind of holding up of that that ideal picture allows for all this room underneath for things to be broken. And 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 you see that with him and Corey as well. You see uh, this this kind of he he thinks that he can demand of Corey that chores be done all the time. And that's a fairly, you know, fairly common thing for parents to demand of their kids. Um, but he demands that Corey have all his chores done and he work his job before he ever go play football. He's, uh, Corey really wants to play football and go to college to play football. He has a uh, uh, a recruiter coming to try to, to get him to talk to Troy to see if Corey can come and play college football. And uh, Troy consistently says, your chores aren't done. Why do you think you're going to football practice? You're not working. Why do you think you're going to football practice? We well, should help me with this fence that I'm trying to build out back. And Corey brings up <laughs> every Saturday, you've said that we were going to work on this fence and you go down to somewhere and I, and you're gone. You're not working on the fence. How can you demand from me that I be here helping you work on the fence? And of course, all these things are interconnected because the bar that he's supposedly at watching baseball is the excuse he uses to go see the other woman, as yep. Bono brings up. You're not actually down at that bar when you say you're there. You're over at the other woman's house. But the, Troy's relationship with his son and with sports is another one of those personal stories Troy has told himself about his life that is not true. And that's we haven't talked much about this, Troy's history with baseball. Yeah, so Troy had a history of playing uh, baseball somewhat professionally. I believe it was an all Afri- African American yeah, league in the when Negro he was playing. League it. Is, is how it's referred to in the play. It's it, you know it, he he thought he could play major leagues. He always thought he was good enough to play major leagues, and they wouldn't let him because of his race. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the 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 big lines that he has. At one point, Rose eventually gets very frustrated with him because he's he's denying Corey the ability to play football. And she says, why won't you just let him play football? Why can't you just admit that you were too old to play Major League Ball? And he says, I was not too old. I could have I could have batted as well as any of these other guys who are going on right now. I was born too early. They wouldn't let me play in the league and 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 some of that is very true. But but the other the kind of underbelly of it is that He's, he's, he's maybe not that good at baseball. <laughs> right, yeah. He he and the people around him at least puff him up. Who knows what they actually right. think. But he thinks that he was one of the best baseball players of all time. You know, mm-hmm. crazy awesome batting averages. He could have hit any of these major league pitchers, no problem. But the reason he was kept out was 100% due to racism. And through the play, we watch some characters in their frustration start to poke holes in that. And the reason they do that is that they're given some stakes in that personal story, which is what's going to happen with Corey. 
Because Troy believes this about his history, that the white man kept him out of baseball, and so they're never going to let Corey get anywhere with sports. He doesn't want Corey to play sports, doesn't want him to waste his time. And so the people around him suddenly have an investment in this part of Troy's personal story that they've let him keep pretty much his whole life. You don't get the sense that anybody's ever questioned this part of Troy's claim about himself before now, that he was this amazing, undiscovered black baseball player who wasn't let to play due to racism. And then as he applies that downward towards Corey, people start to say, look, Troy, that wasn't it, man. Maybe you weren't that good. Or maybe you were a little bit old to play baseball. And maybe you should let your son play. And then, of course, Corey claims really the whole thing here is that you just think I'm bet You're worried that I'm going to be better at football than you were at baseball. That I'm going to have what you couldn't have. Mm-hmm. Which, which Troy answers with, I just want him to be as far away from what I was because I never had anything good in the world. And and or or really, what he says is the only thing I've had. Rose, he's talking to Rose when he says that you're the only thing in the world that I've ever had that was good. And so he he claims at least to be holding this kind of parental care nature part of it, which is which is he wants Corey to work. He needs Corey to work, and he 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 knows that Corey like. If if Corey doesn't doesn't take care of himself, he's going to have similar problems to what Leon is in, <laughs> who's his other son, son by notably a, a previous marriage, um, or Lion, I think is yeah, Lions. Lions is a musician. Uh, I I think it's a really interesting description of Lions that August Wilson gives us. Uh, right when Lions enters, remember this is a play written during that period of time where a character's entrance would be preceded by like a paragraph or more. If this was uh, Arthur Miller, it'd be a lot more right, uh, character description of them. <laughs> um, and so when Lyons comes in, we get a lengthy description of him. And one of the things August Wilson says is that he's he's more interested in the idea of being a musician than in actually being one, which yeah. I just think is fascinating. If you're, a, if you're an actor playing Lyons, to think through, why would August Wilson give me that advice? What does that, mm-hmm. what does that mean? How does that affect my character's outlook, my character's perception of himself in the world. I find that to be fascinating advice from the playwright. Um, but yeah, so Lyons doesn't have a job. He's constantly coming by to beg money off of Troy. And so tr- one of Troy's, ex- you know, at least at appearance, his concern is that Corey is going to end up like Lyons, right? In this field where he doesn't have anything of his own. He's waiting for other people to give him something, gigs, opportunities to play sports. Troy wants Corey to get something that he has that he can use that's his, you know, a, a skill a trade yeah and and cory cory is a bit more of an idealist the same way lion is um cory cory really wants to play football but more specifically he wants to be i think he wants to be seen as good at things um and he is good at things we know he is he's good at football good enough to have a recruiter come and try to talk to troy about him coming to play ball so so there's this 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 there's this recognition of of his worth maybe of his uh of of what he has done that Corey never really gets from Troy and there's just a great scene where Troy eventually gets him to come out and help him with the fence where a lot of that begins to bubble up some of the iconic scenes of this play are in are between Troy and Corey 
and 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 one of them is in a scene where he's where he's trying to build the fence with him. Yeah, this is if you like go to YouTube and search for the Denzel movie. This is one of the scenes you'll find that was used a lot in the advertising because it's so good and and Denzel's playing of it is beyond incredible. It rises to just absolute amazing wonderful I mean, it's just remarkable. You should watch it if you haven't, if I haven't made yep. that clear. Um, Oscar worthy. Oscar worthy. Didn't Dang it. Uh, Viola Davis did, though. So, I mean, yeah, so, Viola, of the yeah, two, yeah, was good. you didn't hold a candle to her in that movie. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. I love you, Denzel, but you got blown out by Viola Davis. You were, a, you were a dull stone compared to her bright star in that movie. Wow. Just saying. Just saying. Also, also thanks for listening. <laughs> yeah, Denzel, if you're out there, I didn't mean any of that. <laughs> you should go to patreon.com slash no script podcast. <laughs> <laughs> ah, anyway, so this is the famous scene between Troy and Corey. He's 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 going after him. It starts with Corey asking, Why don't you like me? And Troy says, Well, I don't need to like you. They they go into this lengthy thing, and it ends with a a shockingly good piece of advice from Troy. And that's one of the things that's complicated about Troy is even when he's wrong, and he's clearly wrong here, right? The response to your son seeking some affirmation, why don't you like me? It feels like you don't like me, isn't to say, I don't have to like you. You know, that's not right. That's not right. Look, I don't think the parenting books say that's the right thing to do, Troy. (laughs) But even in his wrongness, he has this kernel of gold at the center. And this is what he says near the end of that. Um, he says, don't you go through life worrying about it if somebody likes you or not. You best be making sure they're doing right by you. You understand what I'm saying? And the point of this uh, of this, extra, you know, this this long monologue that he gives Corey is, as a father, it's not my job to like you. It's my job to take care of you. I owe you some responsibility as a father to care for you. And that's the real core of our relationship. So don't worry about if I like you. So even in the cruelty of answering right. Corey's search for some affection from his father with nothing there's still there there is a core value to that advice it's the same thing with the football thing right he says you know i you don't 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 wait around for something people can give you take something and take ownership of it the idea that Corey should learn a trade something that he has for himself a skill that he holds that's his isn't bad advice no it's just not uh you know, maybe not the the kind of wind beneath the wings <laughs> advice <laughs> that we are we are we are more accustomed to in this age of parenting, and that's part of uh, Troy's thing too. Is he is resistant to winds of change? Um, he he kind of believes that he knows the world, and he knows the best way that the world should work, and he's and there's very little outside authority as to as to what he should do. From the world, um, and 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 what that ends up materializing is a lot of, as we've kind of said already, people saying times have changed, and actually Corey has a shot, and it's a good shot if a college is asking for him to come and play. So so that that resistance to change is another part of kind of his, uh, what what ends up leading him to where he ultimately ends, which is kind of kind of a, a, a sad remnant of of the strength that he once had. 
Yeah, so so we've talked a, a little bit about some of the stories that Troy builds up, especially in dealing with Corey. One of them is the story of his own belief that he was an amazing baseball player who was slighted by racism, which was at least in part true, um, and, and how that affects Corey's football playing. Uh, one of them is the idea that you know, as a father, he's really he has a different responsibility than showing affection to his son, and that that's a good style of parenting. Uh, that's a story that he tells himself about his life. That's his. That's what he's doing for his son. But then there's also this other story, which isn't so explicit. And really, it's a story by comparison. Because Troy tells this heartbreaking story about his his father when Troy was young. And his father apparently was just a mean SOB. I mean, just a <laughs> cruel man. His mother ran off because of how cruel his father was. Um, but his father put food on the table. It's kind of Troy's story. Put food on the table. But then he tells the story about how um, he he was romantically involved with this young woman when he was a young man. And his father found them down by the riverbank and beat him and then tried to, I guess, rape this young girl in his place. And so Troy had to go back and physically confront his father. And Troy got smashed to pieces. Um, yeah. And that was the day he moved out. He left. He walked off. And so that's a story that, that Troy tells, an actually just straight-up story. And then you kind of see the ways that that works itself into Troy's belief about himself and about the world. First of all, I think Troy believes he's not that kind of father, right? I would definitely agree. If, if you use that as the starting ground for Troy, that story of him and his father, he's actually come a long way as a parent. <laughs> And I th- and I think he he kind of congratulates himself for that in some ways that that I don't have to like you monologue is as I think I don't think there's any shame involved in that monologue. No, he, <laughs> yeah. he thinks it's he, a life lesson. Absolutely, yeah, and he, and it and is he, like we said, like we just said. I mean, it, it's yeah. in some ways it's a good lesson. It's a brutal one, but it is a good lesson. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he, I think he thinks he is doing the best job that he can with. At least that's the story he's told again. He's doing the best job that he can to parent these these children of his to take care of his brother and to take care of his family. And I think he thinks that he can he can capture the spirit of his father, this idea that, you know, his father worked hard every day, sacrificed every day to put food on the table, but never had any affection for them and ended up being kind of a cruel, evil man in a lot of ways. I think Troy believes he can capture the good parts of that, this idea that a father has responsibility to provide for his family above all else, even if it works him to the bone, even if it, it, it you know, he sacrifices everything he has for his family. He can capture that spirit of his father without going into the kind of evil, heartbreaking, cruel ways that his father also displayed. And unfortunately, I mean, one of the heartbreaking aspects of the play, I think, is Troy discovers he's a lot like his father. Mm-hmm. And he sees the consequences. The thing that starts to break the kind of thin layer of ice that is the story he tells of his family is he starts seeing the people that he thinks are in line rebel against him. And it starts with, I think it starts with Corey, Corey. Uh, but, but nah, I don't, I don't know if it really starts. It starts with him admitting to Rose that he's been cheating on her, I think, which is, which is a big moment in the play. Um, it's, it's kind of quick. Bon- Bono kind of, kind of guilts him into admitting that, that he's cheating on Rose. 
which right. doesn't it doesn't doesn't often go that way in a play. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and really through the whole play, Bono's been prodding him about this uh, from the from the almost the very first couple lines of the play. Bono's saying, you know, I've seen you with this gal. What's going on? Come on, Troy. I mean, what what's the deal? And scene after scene, he kind of gets on him about it. And, and then finally. He he really confronts him with this idea, like, I've seen you go to her house a couple of times. I've seen the way you interact in public. It, something is clearly going on. Rose is an incredible human being. What are you doing to her? Yeah. Yeah. And and so so it's a brilliant surprise scene, right? That it's it's surprising that Troy would admit to Rose at all. Right, that he's cheating on her. We're used to the 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 uh, the theme in theater of it being discovered. Somehow, it's discovered from a third party who tells the uh, the other person in the relationship, and then it all blows up in an argument. Right. So, Not so only- Bono doesn't doesn't bl- notably he doesn't blackmail Troy or anything when no. we say he guilts him into it. Uh, he he doesn't even really try to persuade Troy to tell her. Really, Bono's whole point is you should stop. Rose is a great person. What are you doing? And Troy kind of says, "You're right, man. I'm uh, I've been messing things up. I'm I'm sorry." And, and Bono leaves, and then almost right away, Troy says, "Look, I got to tell you something." And what does he tell her? What's the what's the crucial thing that's happened that causes him to need to reveal this? Right. It's it's another layer deeper. He admits to her that he's having a kid with this other woman. That the that Alberta, I think her name is, or something like that, is is pregnant with with his child. Yeah, it's, and so uh, it's an incredible line. The the weight of it, the way that it's written. He's trying to say what he. he, he I'll just read it. Uh, Troy says, <laughs> "I can't explain it. None. It just sort of grows on you till it gets out of hand. It starts out like a little bush. The next thing you know, it's a whole forest." Rose says, "Troy, what is it you're talking about?" Troy says, "I'm talking, woman. Let me talk. I'm trying to find a way to tell you. I'm going to be a daddy. I'm going to be somebody's daddy. I mean, yeah. oh." That's yeah. painful. That's that's Ugh. that is weighty, heartbreaking, crushing news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then so so that is that at least for me is the moment where I think he thinks he's I think he still thinks that he's gonna work it out somehow. But that's the moment that things begin to unravel in this dictatorship that is this family. Well, it's it's the moment, I think, where it's so odd. I'm not sure why Troy hasn't captured this yet. But I think that this scene is the moment where Troy starts to understand that he's the bad guy. Mm. You know, we talked about one of the Troy's belief about his life is that he can maintain this kind of calloused view his father had of the world, that he's just going to sacrifice to put food on the table, and that's all. There's going to be no affection involved in his care for his children or or his responsibility. And Troy thinks, I can have that without having the cruelty. And I think maybe in this interaction with Rose, he starts to reflect on this idea that I— I have captured some of that cruelty too. Right. Yeah, and and I think b- because I think he does care about this family and not I mean clearly not enough to restrict some of his behavior but he he loves Rose, he loves his family at some and 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 beyond liking, he loves and cares for his family. And and I agree that these actions you begin to see it hurts the people around him and he begins to react by drinking more. He already drinks a lot throughout this play, but the the next scene that we pick up the next scene between him and Corey, at least 
He's quite drunk when Corey comes home, and we have another altercation between them, which culminates in just a killer a killer scene, but starts with the line, or, or is queued up with the line, you don't matter around here anymore. Corey says that to Troy. And that just starts this this another iconic scene from this play. To tap back to his interaction with Rose, uh, where he admits his his infidelity for just a brief moment, at near the end of that scene, first of all, Rose that that scene between Troy and Rose, incredible, incredible writing, the height of playwriting, I th- I think. I mean, it's just amazing. And it ends with Troy falling back on this baseball language. Um, he, he says, I want to read a little bit of it so you can capture, and really, I think what I want to highlight here is, what, is the way Rose is responding to this baseball language. So he says... Um, uh, I, I fooled them, Rose. I bunted. When I found you and Corey in a halfway decent job, I was safe. I'm, I'm going to skip around a little bit. I wasn't going to lay in the streets with a bottle of wine. I wasn't going to get that last strike. She says, you should have stayed in my bed, Troy. He says, I got to thinking if I tried, I might be able to steal second. Do you understand? After 18 years, I wanted to steal second. She says, you should have held me tight. You should have grabbed me and held me and held on. He says, I stood on first base for 18 years and I thought, well, goddammit, go for it. And she says, we're not talking about baseball. We're talking about you going off to lay in bed with another woman. I think we see Troy here fall back on his storytelling as a way to excuse his behavior, as a way to spin all of what's gone on as part of this self-understanding that he has of this kind of noble sacrifice of Troy. I worked so hard for my family and I made all this sacrifice and of course I'm going to slip up every now and then, but that I'm the noble sacrifice. And he falls back on this storytelling of baseball. And I love that Rose just cuts through that with cold reality. She says, you should have stayed in my bed, Troy. She says, we're not talking about baseball. We're talking about you laying in bed with another woman and then bringing it home to me. She cuts through it with the clear, hard truth. And that's tough for Troy to face when Mm -hmm. people cut through him with cold, hard truth. Yeah, and responded to with identical facts. If anything, he is still, I mean, he spins a wild tale, but he is able to be confronted by facts. And her last big monologue in here, she says, right, he says, I've been standing on first base for 18 years. She says, I've been standing with you too. I've been right here as well. I gave 18 years of my life standing next to you as well. That interaction right there won Viola Davis an Oscar. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, her performance of that line, I've been standing with you. I've been right here with you. It's heartbreaking. I mean, and Del Zell's good in that scene too, but man, she's the star of that right. scene. She yeah. is the star of that scene. Mm-hmm. So yeah, what the, what then happens after this 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 clash between these two where he finally they they both get a lot of things that have been percolating for over, you know, 18 years out into the open. What what what's the result? Well, so they continue living together, first of all. So that, that scene where Troy and bring, brings his infidelity to Rose ends with Troy kind of grabbing her, hoping that she'll stay and talk to him. He's holding onto her and she's trying to get away. She calls out and that brings Corey from the house who basically shoves Troy. And Troy basically says, all right, you watch it. He, he starts to do this sort of strikeout thing with Corey. You know, that's strike one, that's strike one. Uh, and that the scene ends. We don't get any more of 
exactly what understanding they came to, but they do continue living together. Um, and in the next scene, we find out that Alberta, who's the other woman, has died in childbirth um, and, and left Troy with the care of this baby. Yeah, yeah. Troy shows up. Uh, again, there's, there's, a, there's a beautiful uh, uh, death monologue in this scene, which we haven't talked too much about, but he, he talks to death frequently. That story at the beginning... It comes up multiple times and once he finds out that Alberta has died um, he has this long monologue not long I mean it's it's a half a page in my script but he he yells at death that says when you come for anyone else in my family you come for me first like, and, we and have he, an agreement he brings right? in the fence too this idea he says I'm going to build a fence around this yard I'm going to build a fence around what belongs to me which is an mm-hmm. interesting interesting monologue to give months after admitting you've cheated on your wife as if yeah. you know the whole family still belongs to you in the wake of all this but he, he clearly, clear, clearly still believes that it does mm-hmm. and you're right this this discussion with death links back to that initial story that he tells really the first of his stories uh this this wrestling with death he's no longer afraid of death that he had Mm -hmm. but then he brings the baby to the house he i mean he goes he goes to the hospital he gets the baby and he he kind of does the the talking too loud thing where like you 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 stand outside of a room and talk loud enough for the person in the next room to hear you and basically pleads the plight of this baby to Rose to ask her to take care of it for them. It's a short scene, but it's such a a beautiful, hard human moment. I mean, Mm -hmm. I mean, think about what's happening. Yeah. What do you do? (laughs) Yeah. He's cheated on his wife, but they're still together and he has this baby. The baby's mother's died. So he's forced to bring this baby. He can't care for this baby. He's forced nope. to bring this baby to his own wife, the woman that he cheated on, and ask her to help him raise his child by another woman. How hard. How, I mean, how painful. But at the same time, I don't know, there's a, there's a touching... Uh, it's not quite catharsis, but it, mm-hmm. there's just a swell of emotion at the circumstances that have caused this moment and the, the pain that Troy has now visited upon his family and, and this, the situation that he's stuck in now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think part of it has to do with the flip side of the equation, which is Rose has a husband who has cheated on her who now has come home and now there's a baby. There's a, a child in the world that is connected to this person that she loved for 18 years and who did this horrible thing to her. But but that's not the baby's fault. So she has to make this choice. And it's a beautiful choice, a hard choice. But it's beautiful that she chooses to go out and accept this baby as her child. I, I think you're right, and I think you I think you were correct to point out the flaw in my in my discussion there, which is <laughs> the beautiful part is not Troy, <laughs> right? And the beautiful part is Rose's decision, the selflessness of the decision to care for this child, even though the child represents all the pain that Troy has brought to her and visited upon her through yeah. all of these decisions. 
But it's this intense human, it's like the, the moment is built because it's these two humans, these two incredibly strong humans who are, are, are rotating around each other, are in conflict, and don't resolve their conflict, but come together through this little, little being to create just a, a, a beautiful moment of humanity. And it's a great example too. When I, when I was learning about playwriting and stuff, and I, and I I don't remember exactly where this advice came from, and maybe one of the playwriting textbooks or something. But whoever it was talked about, you know, it's okay to use an accident to get your characters into trouble. And <laughs> Troy cheating on Rose was not an accident, but the death of the woman was a was a tragic mishap. You know, I mean. Mm-hmm. It, unfortunately, at this time, it was common for women to die in childbirth. Even still today, it's shockingly common. But it's it's not something that anybody specifically caused. It just happened. So this just tragic happenstance that she happened to die in childbirth puts these characters in a situation where they're both forced to make incredibly hard decisions. Troy, the hard, hard decision of having to bring this child to Rose, and Rose, as you described, the the selfless, beautiful decision of caring for the child, even still. Mm Mm-hmm. It's, 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 I think, so we've talked about three moments so far. I hope we get to the fourth that sticks out in my head from this play, but this is the three, third of the four moments (laughs) in my head when I think of this play is that, you know, it's the, it's the building the fence with Corey, the fight between Rose with Rose and Troy two scenes ago, and this scene uh, that are, are amongst the images in my head that stick out from this play. Yeah, I, I absolutely think that that's right. And of course, this relates back to the stories that Troy tells about himself too, right? And to the story about his father, because one of the notable points of the stories from his father is that the mother ran off and the father mm-hmm. raised these children by himself, putting food on the table for them by himself. So again, I, Troy lives in this world of, on the one hand, he finds that he can't quite stack up to his father. He couldn't be the noble sacrifice that his father, that he believed his father really was, on the one hand. He couldn't just care for this child or for his sons. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, he also couldn't avoid the cruelty and evil that his father visited upon the family as well because of what we're about to discover, what happens with Corey, which is, I think, perfectly on point. So let's talk about this interaction with Corey. Yeah, so Corey, it's it's months later, two months later. Um, Corey, uh, yeah, Corey comes home and and I think I think – I think this is the scene. I'm just glancing over it quickly, but I think this is a scene where uh, Troy is out back and he's drinking. Everything is kind of falling apart around him. People aren't talking to him. People leave the house. Um, uh, and uh, and Corey comes home and is tries tries to enter the house um, <laughs> over or slightly to the side of Troy sitting on the stairs. Um, try, he tries to kind of push past him and into the house. And so, of course, Troy becomes a bully, right? He becomes the bully that he describes his father was, which is Corey tries to get past him and Troy pushes him back and says, you you know, you need to say, excuse me. I'm still the boss. I'm, you, show me, you still show me that same respect. And Corey's not so inclined to do that. Right. And remember, just a, a scene or two ago, Corey shoved Troy off of off of Rose. So there's always there's already this this physical uh, conflict between these two. Um, the, a line has been crossed. Corey picked a side, and and now there's this tension between them. And 
and and the, the line that I, I alluded to earlier comes out at this point. You ain't got. Uh, I'll just read the line. You ain't got to say. Ex- I ain't got to say excuse me to you. You don't count around here anymore. Corey says that to Troy. And now and- I, I want to take us back briefly to the story that Troy tells about his father before we come to this, the final confrontation between Troy and Corey. So in the story that Troy tells about his father, he's down in the woods. uh, He's, you know, being a teenager with this girl and the father comes and discovers them and the father beats uh, uh, Troy away. And Troy then has to turn around and physically attack his father And he describes that as the day that he became a man. He fights his father and his father beats him to the ground and beats him blackout. I mean, bloody to the point where he's knocked out. He wakes up, he can't see because his eyes are swollen shut and he walks away and leaves. And Troy imagines this is the day he becomes a man and he realizes how evil his father is. So in some ways, he almost like sees this coming. (laughs) Like this is this is a day that he's maybe been thinking about for a while. Well, I don't know. I, if if my understanding of Troy is right, and I, that's not necessarily a given, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but if my understanding of Troy is right, I think that Troy lives in a world where he thinks he can avoid this part of his father, that he he can keep mm. Corey away from this kind of world. But what Troy, I think ends up happening in this scene is that he becomes this bully of a father pushing Corey around and then he becomes the bad guy right because he and Corey get into this fight where Troy pushes and then he forces Corey to push back and they have this same physical confrontation or a similar one at least to the one Troy and his father would have had. Mm-hmm. Notably, Corey gets shoved kind of back towards a tree. Um, amongst the the settings of this play, there is a tree that has a ball hanging from it, and a bat rests against this tree. So throughout the play, as as uh, Troy is you know mentioning baseball days, there is the option to have him swinging his bat at this ball that's hanging on the tree. Um, Corey gets shoved back towards the tree and picks up the bat. Which is another, It's a that, that's a crucial connection to this fight that Troy and his father have in the storytelling because Troy picks up his father's uh, farming leather straps that he uses for the donkey. So uh, there's this already this, this symmetry, right, of Troy as a teenager physically going against his bully of a father with his father's farming tools and, Tro- and then Corey... pushing against his bully of a father with his father's baseball bat. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) Those, those parallels are just all the way through. And so then, then Corey, they're standing there and it's, I, I love the, I love the aspect of Troy as a bully in this scene because he kind of pushes at him. He sticks his head out in front of him. And is like, you, you go ahead and hit me. Can you hit me? You better make a count. You're on, you got a full count. Remember? So make this one count and Corey can't do it. Like there's this moment of confrontation. He swings once or twice, but the, and the moment where he could hit him, he doesn't. And Troy yanks the bat bat from bat back from him, knocks him to the ground, and well, then uh, before we get there, <laughs> you, I, you I know you're trying to push voice. me. You're trying to push me, but there's one more thing that is a, an, an important <laughs> connection, and it's an important difference because I think we're reaching the point of the physical confrontation where it separates and becomes different from the confrontation that Troy has with his father. Because in the confrontation with Troy and his father, Troy takes the straps and he does hit his father. He attacks him with the straps. Corey, notably, can't do it. 
He can't hit his father with the baseball bat. So Corey, at this moment, separates himself from being Troy as a teenager. He makes a different connection. And then Troy has this opportunity standing over Corey with the baseball bat. He has the opportunity to beat Corey unconscious, beat him to a pulp, just like his father beat him. And I'll throw it back <laughs> at you. Your turn. I, in that moment, I think he kind of wakes up. Um, he he realizes where the path he's walked to get here, and that he's similar to what happened to what his father did to him, and he stops. I don't think it's I don't think it's out of a particular merit of Corey's that he stops. I think it's out of a fear of what he has become that he stops. Because a beat later, he kicks him out. It's not like they end it with you know an apology or something like that, and Corey storms away. He he kicks Corey out. He says, "Your stuff will be on the other side of the fence when you come back." Don't come back. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely ends with him casting Corey out. But I think the decision not to beat Corey bloody, beat him unconscious, is an important one. And I, I know it's an important one because it's Troy's one of his real last decisions of the play, right? <laughs> yeah. This yeah. is his last scene. And it's always... I find it so odd that this is the final scene instead of a scene with Rose, uh, you know, a different kind of a confrontation scene until I made that connection with Troy, the story of Troy's father. Because Troy deciding not to be his father, not to take that moment and beat his son unconscious just to teach him a lesson, just to teach him not to stand up to his father. Not His decision not to be that guy I think is an important one for Troy and and represents some kind of awareness and decision-making that I hope is somewhat redemptive for the character. Right. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> yeah, you hope, you hope so. And and yeah, well, and and what we find out too is, is what this, we keep saying this is the last scene with him. It's not the last scene of the play. We kind of get to see the consequences of his actions in one more scene in this play. Right, so the final scene is years, years later. Beginning of the play, 1957. This final scene, 1965. His daughter, Troy's daughter, is, has grown up a little bit. She's a, a very young girl now named Renelle. And the day is Troy's funeral. Uh, Troy's last line of the play in that in that scene just previous, the, the scene from the confrontation with Corey, is once he kicks Corey out, he says, uh, it's between you and me now. He's talking to death. Anytime you want, come on, I'll be ready for you, but I ain't going to be easy. He's got this bat out, and he's ready to combat death again. And then the next scene is a Troy's funeral. So there's, uh, I mean, that's powerful writing, powerful mm-hmm. connection, powerful placing of a line with a, with a, with a scene to come. And also powerful, um, leaving you to wonder what <laughs> it is powerful to wonder what it's like for someone to be in that state. And then years later they die. Right. And we're, we're not a part of the story for those years. Like that, that's, 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 that's like kind of this, this almost heartbreaking thing for me to think about is like 1965 is fam- is when he dies prior to that, this event happens where his family has fallen apart and he lives on for years, ready to die, ready to face death. Well, and it's interesting because Rose actually describes how Troy dies. That that, that ends up, uh, she provides at least some semblance. And he said, she she says he was out here swinging the bat. He was. I was ready to go back in the house. He swung that bat and then just fell over. Seems like he swung it and stood there with this grin on his face, and then he just fell over. 
So yep. the, she describes that that last moment we see Troy in the conversation, the confrontation with Corey. You know, it's not the moment that he died because he dies years later. But what has really happened <laughs> to Troy in the intervening years? He's still out there swinging the bat. <laughs> yeah. Kind of nothing, which is heartbreaking. <laughs> like, he, you know, you imagine it's not the only time he was out there swinging the bat waiting for death. So to just kind of live for years ready for death, that's tough. But it's also tough to see what his actions have done for everyone. Uh, some some of it is could be seen as good. Corey comes back and he's a Marine. Um, he has, you know, kind of taken control of his life in, in, in the way that he knew how and joined the Marines. Yeah, it's it's interesting that that's the direction that August Wilson leads Corey because of course it's it's totally different I would think than Troy would really want. It it's hard to know because it it kind of comes out of the blue. There's no real discussion through the whole play of whether or not Corey is going to join the army. But Gabriel was in the army and got injured and and lived the rest of his life suffering the consequences of that and also I mean, part of being in the army is giving up your power of decision making over your own life. You know, I mean, it, it's it's sort of it's so obviously militaristic, right? It's so structural. Corey becomes rather than somebody like Troy out with a trade making something for himself. This is how Troy would have viewed it. Obviously, not this is not anywhere close to reality. <laughs> but right. it, I think the sense of what Troy would have viewed is maybe Corey had kind of given up control of his life uh, I chose to just join this machine where uh you know higher ups make decisions for him and he has no control right right i think i think also what what might be the the kind of the ten tenuous line of control that he gets is that he knew that he would never have to rely on troy those last five years, no, joining the army or however long, however many years went by after that final interaction, you know, kicked kicked out of his house, can only kind of talk to his mom ever. Um, what is the one way that he knows that he can be just fine <laughs> and never have to ask his dad for anything again? Like that, that's a pretty good way to accomplish that. <laughs> well, right. And he, and he joins another community too. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, brothers in arms at that time that, that would have been kind of the world view. Well, the scene itself is Corey has returned. I hadn't seen his family in a long time, returns for this funeral and tells Rose that he doesn't want to go to the funeral. He wants to say no to his father once, you know, have that, have that as part of his life once. Mm-hmm. And, and boy, that's another beautiful scene for Rose's, uh, Rose as a character. She talk, ends up talking him out of it by kind of saying, you're, you're just going to become which again you're going to perpetuate this cycle that that this family has uh with with the 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 men in this family of this this kind of scrappy uh always kind of under the the previous father under their thumb no matter what you what you may be thinking that you're rebelling against him but you're actually doing doing the only thing left to you to to remain under his sway yeah, and she has this incredibly awesome line. She talks about how um, when your daddy walked through the house, he was so big he filled it up. That was my first mistake, not to make him leave some room for me. 
for my part in the matter. But at that time, I wanted that. I wanted a house I could sing in, and that's what your daddy gave me. I didn't know how to keep up his strength, so I had to give up little pieces of mine. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's, that's a beautiful reflection on a life lived, on mistakes made, and about mistakes made with this larger-than-life storyteller like Troy, who builds up himself and, the, and the, his, his idea of life and doesn't leave any room for the reality of the people around him. Right. Yeah. So, so, and, and I mean, that's that you see, you see throughout the family that that is true. Certainly in Rose and Corey, we learned that Lion has been in prison. Um, notably, there's some foreshadowing of that line early on. He says, if I'm not playing music, I don't know what I would do. Um, we found out what he would do when he, well, when he kind of, <laughs> the other foreshadowing of it is that Troy was in prison. We didn't talk about that much, mm-hmm, but Troy yeah. spent a stint in prison as well. And part of you know we've talked about part of the what goes on in this story is the cyclical nature of family and a, and of a life and mm-hmm. lions lives out that part of troy's life as well yep i'd love to hear your thoughts on the final image of the play i don't know how to transition real cleanly to it but the the final uh, beat of this play is gabriel is there for the funeral and he blows his trumpet well, he At says it, it's time to open the gates. It's time to tell St. Peter to open the gates. Are you ready, Troy? Are you ready? I'm going to tell St. Peter to open the gates. I'm not sure if we've said this very explicitly. Part of the damage that was done to Gabriel has left him believing that he's the angel Gabriel. Yeah. And he has a trumpet that he walks around. He's always proclaiming things like this. Bringing about the judgment day, guarding against hellhounds. Yeah, he's talking about stuff like that all the time. Yep. Yeah, so the, the, the final beat of the play is they're all there at the house kind of ready to go to the funeral. And uh, he's yeah, he says it's time to open the gates. And he pulls out his trumpet and he gets ready to kind of, he takes in a deep breath and gets ready to blow the trumpet. And the trumpet doesn't have a mouthpiece on it. So it's this, this big breath in and then he blows through just an open trumpet. Um, and so pretty much no noise is produced as a result of it. And I believe he he does it again. I think he I think he blows on it twice. He blows on it a third time, and and there's no sound, and 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 it's and it's the last image of the play. <laughs> well, it's not quite the last image of the play. The the stage directions say it's uh because he can't blow and make sound, he decides to dance instead, and he does a quote slow strange dance, eerie and life giving. And later on, he begins to howl in what is an attempt at a song, or perhaps a song turning back into itself in an attempt at speech. This is the, this is the last image of the play. He finishes his dance, and the gates of heaven stand <laughs> open right. as wide as God's closet. And then he says, that's the way that go. <laughs> so what? <laughs> <laughs> the gates of heaven open up, man. It says just, it right there. Just out of nowhere. <laughs> the gates, gates of, heaven. of heaven stand open as wide as God's closet. Of course, you know, how how wide open is God's closet? I'm not sure I understand I mean, that reference. <laughs> philosophers have debated yeah. for centuries. Uh, <laughs> that might be one of those references that maybe is just a little dated for me. I don't sure, sure. I don't know what that is what that means. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Now the, the 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 movie gifts has has a pretty good way of dealing with this. If I remember correctly, they they do something with the sun and the light, and it kind of it, it blooms out that way. But but boy, in a theatrical production, 
this is this is quite an ending moment for a very realistic. Um, I, I don't want to say naturalistic because that means something specific, but I want to say the opposite of supernaturalist. You right. know, it, there, there's no other supernatural elements. Um, it's just this moment at the end of the play. The gates of heaven stand open. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's it's wide open for interpretation. It, you know, you, various productions can do can do what they want with it. But what do you suppose is the the weight of that as our as our last like our, our as as our last beat? What are we referencing with this with well, this I, last? I moment? mean, I think it's intended to be beautiful and redemptive. Somehow, Troy and all of the heartbreak and agony that he's brought through his uh, puffed up imagination of himself has gotten to heaven. I mean, the gates mm-hmm. of heaven stand open for him. If you know, if that's true, is is it because of Gabriel? <laughs> and if that's so, there that's there's some. Um, textual basis for that because of course that's the only reason Troy has a house for example mm-hmm. that's a good that's a good point and I think also notably all of his family is there to kind of stand and maybe maybe forgive is too strong a term but that flavor is in there of like we are witnessing him going to heaven and it's beautiful Somehow. and it's it's odd <laughs> right I mean it I don't I don't find there to be much redemption of the character of Troy. Even in the final scene, you know, the characters talk about their father some, and they sing a song that he sang, and they're not all of them, Corey still is very clearly, but not all the rest of them seem very bitter about the legacy that he leaves behind. But it, it it's not explicitly redemptive either. And I, that's why I think the moment where he decides not to beat Corey in is more than it seems. I think it has to be more than it seems. It's not just, I decided not to hit my own son with a baseball bat. There's some redemptiveness in the decision of, I've decided not to be that person my father was to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just that that little beat there, because otherwise he's a character, I don't... He's a character that doesn't really seek redemption. I think we've kind of talked about how confident he is in his worldview. And notably, that is, I think that is kind of what separates him. One of the things that separate him from the true tragic hero stereotype. The tragic hero almost always at the end is like, oh, sorry, gods. I really messed up. I shouldn't have done this. Send me away. Um, That notably is not there for Troy. So the only thing we kind of have left is the world he leaves behind to see if they can redeem some of his memory. And I guess they do. I mean, the gates of heaven stand open for him somehow. Um, If that's, if part of the message is, you know, we only survive through this kind of stuff through our families, that there there might be something in there about that, that the family is there to bear witness and perhaps provide passage for someone like Troy to eternal bliss. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. But if you're sure, you should write us and let us know. <laughs> we are sadly at the end of our time, so this is the time when we invite you to be joining the conversation. And there's a good deal more in this play that we could talk about if we had all the time in the world. So if there are more themes that you would like to talk with us about, hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The username on all of those are at NoScriptPodcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those social media slight, sites slash emails, and we would love to continue having conversations about fences or any of our other plays that we've talked about with you. 
If you like this episode or any of our other episodes, you can share them on your social media or tell people about them. That's a huge help. You can find our podcast on Podbean, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play. We also share a link to the new episode every Monday on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you've stuck with us this far, then you should be excited because coming up is a really exciting part of our regular season programming. We are coming upon our themed month. Uh, in the past, we have done Musical Month and Miller Month, and this season we are doing Magic Month. So we'll all spend M's. a month. All M's. And we've got that alliteration <laughs> going. Uh, this season, we're going to spend four plays talking about how magic is used in theater and in play. So we'll look at some different plays that have elements of magic in them and talk about those together. We're really excited about it. Hope that you are too. That'll be next month. Yes, so hold your Octobers for us. And until next week when we are talking about another play with all of you, I am Jackson Nikolai. I am Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us on No Script. We'll see you.